Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Henry Sugar was 41 years old, unmarried and rich. He was rich because he had a rich father who was now dead. He was unmarried because he was too selfish to share any of his money with a wife. He was six feet, two inches tall and not perhaps as handsome as he thought he was. He paid a great deal of attention to his clothes. Henry Sugar is one of a handful of characters populating four new short films directed by Wes Anderson, all adapted from stories by Roald Dahl and all currently streaming on Netflix. That was Ray Fiennes as Dahl, Fiennes one of a very small handful of actors who appear in the films. Joining him, Benedict Cumberbatch, Dev Patel, Ben Kingsley, and Rupert Friend. This week, reviews of all four shorts and more. He said, his mouth inches away from the microphone. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. We've been looking forward to these new Wes Anderson shorts for weeks now, and Josh, we can finally talk about them. Unfortunately, as with many films that are exclusive to streaming platforms, it's pretty hard to know who, if anyone, is watching them. I guess we we do have a letterbox, so we at least know if our cinephile friends are checking them out. Yeah, that gives us a sense, and you know, on social media in general, you'll see people talking about it. But it does feel different and weird compared Mm -hmm. to, you know, a standard theatrical release, that's for sure. We definitely know that some film spotting listeners are watching them because of Letterboxd and also because of social media. Our producer, Sam, went on social to pose this question. The Wes Anderson shorts are, and here were the choices he offered listeners. Perfection, a mixed bag, but cool. A bit much, yeah, or Sam, always very clever. I don't Netflix chill. (laughs) The results, Josh, are these. A bit much, yeah. Only 6%. That's encouraging. I don't Netflix, chill. This got 19% of the vote. I don't know. Obviously, that's maybe not comprehensively representative of film spotting listeners, but just for even a social poll, I would have thought more listeners have Netflix. Maybe not. A mixed bag, but cool, received 35% of the vote. And perfection, perfection, Winning it 39%. And this, of course, being a film spotting poll has to be a deeply flawed film spotting poll. And I know some took issue with, and Sam has a certain method to his madness always. I'm at least going to suggest that. They noted, Josh, that he didn't give us much wiggle room between perfection and a mixed bag, but cool. I think some folks are in between. They had to pick one. Yeah. Sam's all about the extremes. Take a stand. That's right. Take a stand. We will see how we grade the Wes Anderson shorts because we are going to discuss all four of them, two in the back half of the show, The Rat Catcher and Poison, and two here in the first half of the show, The Swan plus the longest of the quartet, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. 
My name is ZZ Chatterjee, head surgeon at Lords and Ladies Hospital, Calcutta. On the morning of the 2nd of December, 1935, I was in the doctor's restroom having a cup of tea. Three other doctors were present with me. Dr. Marshall, Dr. Mitra, and Dr. McFarlane. There was a knock on the door. Come in, I said. Excuse me, please. May I ask you gentlemen a favor? This is a private room, I said. Yes, I know, and I'm very sorry to burst in like this, but I have a most, I think, interesting thing to show you. All four of us were pretty annoyed and we didn't say anything. Gentlemen, I'm a man who can see without using his eyes. In a New York Times interview last month, Wes Anderson discussed how he'd been trying to adapt the wonderful story of Henry Sugar, a 1977 doll story, for over a decade. Dahl died in 1990, but the Dahl Story Company, run by his family, had granted Anderson permission to adapt the material. In September 2021, Netflix acquired the Dahl Story Company, including the author's entire catalog of novels and shorts, which meant that any Dahl adaptations would have to be done with and for Netflix. For some reason, Josh, I can't say this next part without adopting a terrible faux Ray Fiennes intonation. Had Anderson already penned his Henry Sugar adaptation before this deal went down? We don't know. What we do know is that Anderson began production on Henry Sugar and the other doll shorts just a few months later in early 2022. For Anderson fans, and surely even for some non-fans, there are indisputably many indelible, unforgettable lines of dialogue. Oh, are they? She's my Rushmore, Max. I've had a rough year, Dad. I wonder if it remembers me. I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about, which sounds awfully close to a phrase I coined on this show several years before Moonrise Kingdom came out, but I digress. Even though I'm pretty sure in 12 years of talking about movies together, including spending a decent amount of off-mic time with each other, I can't recall a single time, Josh, you've ever incorporated a movie quote into your daily life. I still bet we could go on and on reciting Anderson lines. Not opposed to it. Just don't roll that way, Adam. <laughs> Unlike myself and our producer. And actually, can we go on and on? I'd be fine with that, just quoting Anderson lines for the next 60 minutes or so, except then we wouldn't get to the writing in these doll adaptations. I intentionally chose not to Google and validate or invalidate the sense I'm about to share. I'd prefer to believe what I believe. Plus, I knew that you, the ever-dutiful critic who has already read many doll stories, would do your homework and read these. That sense? That if the scripts for all four of these shorts weren't a quick copy-and-paste job of the doll text into Final Draft, then they must reflect one of the most faithful processes of literary adaptation ever. Admittedly, I have little basis for my claim. While I have seen Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, many times, of course, and regrettably, Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, one time, and Anderson's own fantastic Mr. Fox, not only have I not read these doll stories, I've never read any doll stories. So I don't claim any authority when it comes to recognizing the writer's style or use of language. However, Anderson's devotion to employing narrators within the world of the stories and without and employing dialogue tags, he said, I asked, she wondered, indicates an intact authorial voice. I should probably note here that Ray Fine's main storyteller is credited as Roald Dahl. There's also the matter of the multitude of mellifluous phrases that Anderson himself might be capable of creating, but that more likely were summoned to the page by a poet who has captivated millions with the magic of his words. We're going to start with Henry Sugar, 
but you got to give me a quote, Josh. I want your single best line or passage from any of the shorts we're going to talk about. And I want to know, despite how we like to fuss over Anderson's fussy visuals, he's working here with regular collaborators such as cinematographer Robert Yeomans and production designer Adam Stockhausen, how significantly his fidelity to Dahl's prose impacted your appreciation of these films. Yeah, I mean, this is a great place to start, and there are so many fascinating things we could unpack when it comes to these adaptations. And you wouldn't think you'd say that if you were told these are pretty much taking the written word and transferring it into the mouths of the actors, right? You would That would immediately sound kind of boring to you. That probably would have been my response if I had known going in that's what Anderson did. Um, totally, you know, not an expert <laughs> when it comes to Dahl, have read a fair amount of his stuff. When it comes to these shorts, I did read Henry Sugar and I read The Rat Catcher. Um, so, no, I'm sorry. I read The Swan, did not read The Rat Catcher. So I can't say and have not fed it through an algorithm to report back what percentage is actually from the page, but it certainly feels like we're in the 90 percentile here in terms of using exact dialogue. I don't have an immediate line that sums everything up for me. One that may or may not be Dahl, I don't remember for sure, definitely feels Andersonian comes from Henry Sugar when he says at one point, Benedict Cumberbatch looking directly at the camera as the characters often do in these, I don't want to be the richest man on earth. Mm -hmm. It's one of those clarifying observations that appear in so many of Anderson films. As I said, I think that one is in the on the printed page as well. I think what we played at the top of the show, Adam, though, is a better example of what Anderson is doing here when it comes with Dahl's words. That description of Henry Sugar, which I do think is verbatim from the original story, exemplifies what Dahl does so well in terms of painting a character in just a couple of sentences. No matter what story you're reading, you are going to feel like you have the full sense of this character after a couple of sentences. Um, and I think you could say the same of Anderson's films, not only how a character is presented, but what they say about themselves and what others say about them. Often that's where we get our sense of a character. So they're they're the same as artists in that sense. And I see that and I think that that line about Henry Sugar, 41 years old, unmarried, rich. We're getting some facts, but then it gets a little, a little more observant, right? Unmarried. Why? Because he was too selfish to share any money with a wife. Then we're starting to get a fuller picture. So I think that's a great one to point to as well. Um, you know, my skepticism melted away pretty quickly when I got into these, Adam, despite realizing how literal they were going to be, how faithful to the written word. And let me just say there were two reasons why from the top here, and, and then we can dive more deeply into Henry Sugar specifically. This reminded me so much of reading stories aloud to my kids at bedtime, which was something for a number of years that was essentially a nightly ritual, including doll stories. And not just the memory of that, but the joy of narrating, of getting to be silly, of adopting voices. And mm -hmm. what do you do when you're reading a, a story to your kids? You say, he said, she said, or I said. You don't skip that stuff, right? And so it beautifully brought back those memories to me. And I think we can say more about this entire project being a meditation on the art of narration. Mm -hmm. Every one of these observes and studies that differently. And then the second thing I would say is that um, 
despite foregrounding Dahl's language, the ways that Anderson made these shorts incredibly cinematic yeah. is such an object of study. I went way overboard, have been doing some traveling lately, and so had a long flight uh, back from Calgary. Uh, actually, I was going from Calgary all the way to Vermont. And how did I spend that time? I rewatched each of these, specifically taking notes on the cinematic techniques. So in other words, things that could only be done as a movie, not as a story, not as a narrated audiobook, not as a stage production. There's a lot of stage theatricality in here, but only done as a movie. And it was shocking to me how cinematic these were um, when you actually start denoting all, all the elements that Anderson and his team brought to this. So, I mean, perfection is a strong word, but these are awfully close in my they're book. Close. <laughs> they're, they're really close. close. Yeah. And, and Henry Sugar might be the closest to it. It's funny because the great thing about these being all 17 minutes long and then Henry Sugar being around 39 is that I too had the opportunity to rewatch all of them in advance of recording. And I made a lot of similar notes. And at some point, I actually just stopped writing down every time Anderson did something incredible visually because there were so many of them. It's, it's happening at such a brisk pace that it's hard to even keep up. And actually the pace is something I love about all of these films. Few things in response to what you said, you noted it putting you back in storyteller mode as a dad. And of course, I think part of the magic of these films for me is being so blatantly in audience mode, receiving the story. Now, one might say, well, aren't you always in audience mode if you're watching a movie? Yes, but it's very different when there's so many layers to the storytelling, so many different narrators, and they are all looking at you almost all the time. It is as if they are looking directly at you because they're looking at the camera and they are reciting this story to you personally. And it takes on so much more intimacy and so much more urgency. I'm going to give you another line from that open that was my favorite that I, I wrote down where we're being introduced to the Henry Sugar character and really tells us everything we need to know about him. He's talking about the kind of rich man he is. And he says, they're not particularly bad men, but they're not good men either. <laughs> what, a, what better summation do you need than that? And I'll give you one they of float, my, isn't it? Isn't they float through life like seaweed or something, seaweed. right? Like men like him. Seaweed. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's really wonderful. And I'll give you a clarifying statement as you referred to it. Three words, a phrase that actually, I suppose we'd have to say is a cliche and in anybody else's hands verbally, but also within the construct of these films, of these works, these words take on so much more poignancy. A character near the end of Henry Sugar saying, these things happen. Yeah. These things happen. It, it, it hits you with the same weight that some of those other lines I, I mentioned do. But I'm going to give you my favorite bit of language. And, and the moment, even though it comes pretty late in the film, I was already hooked at this point in Henry Sugar, but where it sort of went to another level for me and I realized how much I appreciated what Anderson was doing in terms of his faithfulness to the language. It's when Henry Sugar goes to the casino and he enters the lobby 
And then he goes into the secret door that takes him in. And he says this by way of his narration. Well-fed women circled the roulette wheel like plump hens around a feeding hopper. Men with crimson faces, cigars between their lips, counted their chips, eyes glittering with greed. That's all doll, too. That's all doll. I mean, yeah. of course it is. It, it, it has to be. And it's, it's so much fun to hear. It's also even just for me. And I'm not, I'm not a Shakespearean actor. I'm not a classically trained actor like most of the people who make up these films. How easy it is for them and how fun it is to say those lines trippingly off the tongue. Cigars between their lips, eyes glittering with greed. You can count it, Josh. You can go back to fundamentals of literary analysis or traditions of English literature, whatever your class was called. There is a clear iambic meter at play. And Again, to hear these actors say these lines, especially a line like that one, is such a treat. And then, of course, you add to it all the visual elements that we've we've touched on but haven't really gotten into fully yet. I'll just say about the language to close that the beauty of a line like that in this film and the way Anderson's constructed it is you don't need to visualize it to see it vividly in your mind. And Anderson understands that. Yeah, he so doesn't. he doesn't he doesn't try to portray that. Nope. There there are moments that are one-to-one matching moments, but there's nuance to all of them and for the most part, he doesn't do that one-to-one matching of text to scene or at least not a literal match. It's always about what Anderson either omits or what he adds to it. Yeah, there's a great example of that. I mean, jumping ahead a little bit in the Rat Catcher, where Ray Fine's character in the title is being described, and I can't recall exactly, as doing something that is described so well and accurately, and Fine's just stands in front of the camera and doesn't move at all. That, yeah. And that's another example of exactly what you're talking mm-hmm. about, right? Anderson chooses his cinematic moments so wisely in every one of these so that we're not overloaded and he's not stomping on the language. <laughs> that's no. that's the main point. Uh, related to language, but I wanted to bring this up just related to Henry Sugar particularly, is the level – this could also be a case study in how voice – is employed in fiction. So first-person voice, third-person voice. Uh, If a listener has not seen this yet, just want to note that Cumberbatch, playing Henry Sugar, narrates his actions in the third person, Mm -hmm. even as he's performing them in the first. Sir William's father had been an important book collector, and all four walls of this huge room were lined with beautiful, antiquated, leather-bound volumes, floor to ceiling. Henry Sugar wasn't interested. The only books he read were detective novels and thrillers. Nothing like that here. He was about to leave when his eye was caught and held by something quite different. It was so slim he never would have noticed it if it hadn't been sticking out a little from the books on either side. He pulled it from the shelf. So just as a performing juggling act, that is incredible to watch. And it's also bending your mind a little bit by what story are we being told by whom Mm -hmm. and who are we as the listeners? All of these complications are at play, even as this wonderful language is flowing over you and it's just entertaining. Then we move ahead to the second layer of the story, which is this journal that Henry Sugar finds in a library and he begins reading it. We jump to the narrator of that journal, Dr. Chatterjee, played by Dev Patel. 
he's narrating in the first person now while also performing the actions. So we've had a shift, right? And he even prefaces his lines. We've mentioned this by saying something like, I said, and then he says it with a deft look at the camera as well. So more performance magic here. Then we get to the next layer, Ben Kingsley, this man who can see without his eyes that Dr. Chatterjee meets and writes about. He begins to share his part of the tale while looking directly into the camera the whole time. So it's so fun. But again, this this master class on voice and Mm -hmm. how it's employed in fiction, it, it, this could really be something that is held up for not only, you know, filmmaking, screenwriting, but any sort of literary writing as well. And here are the options. Here are all the balls juggling in the air of options for you as a writer. And um, they're happening at the same time. It's just incredible to watch. It is. And you said it, but something I really love about Henry Sugar in particular is just the number of storytellers. I love how deftly, and and actually it kind of, it moves in a bit of a circle or kind of comes full circle, starting with fines. We're first being told this story by the writer, Roald Dahl. Mm-hmm. It then goes to Benedict Cumberbatch telling his story. It becomes Dev Patel's character story. Then it becomes for a while, Ben Kingsley telling yep. his own story instead of all these other people getting to tell his story. He actually tells it before going back to Patel, back to Cumberbatch, and then ultimately back to Fines. And I don't think anyone is saying this, but if anyone listening is like, well, if if the primary pleasures of this film are language, or or even if I'm singling out how how paramount the language is and how much I enjoyed it, well, then maybe I can just read Dahl. Why can't I just read mm-hmm. Dahl? Why do I need to watch this? And of course, to your point about the voice work, Forget the Anderson stuff for a second. Just just focus on what you said about the voice work. You're missing out on that joy, the joy of hearing these performers bring this language to life. And I'll give you another one of my own examples of that. It's in the sequence involving Kingsley's character. Dev Patel is the narrator. Ayoade is the other doctor. And as he does multiple times, he says what Ayoade's character is going to say mm-hmm. before he says it. And it's at a particularly sad kind of moment. And he says, that's that, he said. And then we get Ayoade's that's that. Yeah. And those two words <laughs> take on so much immense weight when you hear them come out of his mouth, maybe even exacerbated by the fact that we know they're coming. Mm, yeah. No, that's a good point because we do, we're used to the format at that point, but what you're getting here is another level, another level of experience. We're understanding it's different to narrate something than to perform it, to Mm -hmm. enact it. And Ayoade, who is just a complete revelation here as hopefully a recurring member now of the Andersonian Anderson ensemble layers that with so much finality and hurt with just those two words. And it's the distinction that makes us recognize that. Um, So yeah, if we want to get into the cinematic stuff next, at least as it pertains to Henry Sugar, here here were my categories that I decided, uh, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm going to keep track of. If someone were to say to me exactly what you were talking about, Adam, is why don't I just read Dahl? Yes, you get you would miss out on the voice performances and all the other aspects of the performances. You'd also miss out on all of these cinematic techniques 
camera angles, camera pushes, Mm -hmm. insert shots, edits, the screen acting. We've kind of touched on this as opposed to stage acting, the moving camera and montage. All of those tools are on display, and I promise you I'm not (laughs) going to bore everyone by ticking off in each of these shorts every an example from every one of those. But I want to highlight here in Henry Sugar two of the ones that were the most effective to me, and one was the camera push. This involves set design and production design as well. I'm glad you called out those members of his team because they're so crucial here, perhaps more so than ever before. But the camera push into the quote-unquote jungle Mm -hmm. when Ben Kingsley is telling his story and he's searching after this mysterious yogi who lives in the jungle, we get these painted panels of forest leaves and flowers that give way. They slide to the side and reveal more behind them. Then they slide. We get another layer. And it's not just the panel sliding. You could do that in a theater. But then we get a camera push, which is so crucial to increasing the sense of movement, increasing the depth. And notice that Anderson decides to do this. The previous couple of minutes have all been Kingsley standing still, narrating directly into the camera. So we've had extensive static screen time followed by this push that is just incredibly effective and something you really could only really could only do in a movie, couldn't do it on stage, certainly can't do it on the page. Well, just like Anderson seems to intrinsically feel the rhythm of the language, he intrinsically understands how to develop rhythm with the camera. And there are some of the best camera pushes that you'll see throughout all four of these that you'll see anywhere. Yep. So subtle, but so effective. And and often they they will move in after a prolonged little bit of static motion. And then sometimes after stopping following the push, then a character turns and moves. And so the camera then is off. And again, that adds to this, this varying of rhythm and the overall sense of pace. I actually found, I mean, the word I jotted down here is I found watching these films, listening to the rhythm of the language, following the rhythm of the camera and all these elements you described, I found it invigorating. Mm-hmm. There, there is such yeah. an urgency oh, yeah. to it. And, and with those storytellers, again, talking directly to you and doing it at the pace that they're doing it, there's just this sense like you have to listen. Yes. You, you are being told they are sharing with you the secrets of the world. That's what it feels like. <laughs> yeah. The deeper meaning behind life feels like it's being revealed to you through these storytellers. And you you listed some of the the moments visually that – you were really struck by. I need to give you a few of mine. The one you're describing with Ben Kingsley, where he starts telling his story, that's the most blatant example, I think, or at least it was for me, throughout all four of them, where it truly felt like a living, breathing picture book. It's, it's oh, this, yeah. this diorama, right? And following him through the jungle and the the vivid colors and the the different the different elements in terms of the foreground and the background, it it feels like such an immense world, even though ultimately there's not a ton that's happening on screen. And in fact, it it is all static. The camera moves, but there are often shots where we're we're just looking at scenery. And sometimes I felt like I was watching the scenery come in and out in a Rushmore play as well, which was mm, kind of fun mm-hmm. as you watch these films. But there's also a bit of fun you get with performance with Benedict Cumberbatch near the end 
that also it's performance, but you can also tie it to the visual approach and that the camera stays still as Cumberbatch comes in and out of the frame inhabiting different personas. Yeah. So we get to see him in different <laughs> costumes and take on different physicality and of course different accents and it's a bravura bit from him. It doesn't seem like a bravura bit of camera work because again the camera is motionless, but of course it's relying on editing to do the work sure. and it's really fun and it's really effective. How about the rear projection, the use of rear projection. <laughs> yes. It's so much fun as he walks home from the casino <laughs> yes. that night through the streets. This is something else I love about Anderson. I love that a filmmaker who's obsessed with storytelling and the secrets that it, it ultimately can reveal, he loves, and I talked about this with Asteroid City when we reviewed it a few months ago, he loves to incorporate frames within the frame. And so when we, we get that moment here, there are other examples in the other shorts, but in Henry Sugar, there's one where Henry Sugar is discovering the book early on that's ultimately going to change his life. And he moves forward on this bookcase and the camera is basically in the position of the book he's looking at. And it's like it's on a bookcase shelf. So the top of the shelf is cutting Cumberbatch off. And there's this clear like widescreen frame within the larger widescreen frame of the movie itself. I really love here as well, Josh, how he incorporates that that spotlight effect at yeah, key moments. For their eyes. Like, yeah. For their eyes. The name of the book gets it here. There's a moment in The Swan we might touch on that gets it. There's another one at the end of Henry Sugar when he has an epiphany when Ray Fine's cop character comes to the door. That's all all really effective as well. And and ultimately just just watching the inventiveness again of the visual approach, of the production design, of the costumes, and again, all those layers of storytelling, it adds up to this, this paradox, which is you feel as if both Dahl and Anderson, and this is part of the conceit of the film where he's sitting down to write, and then mm -hmm. you begin, he says, basically, yeah. and then you start to write. The, the conceit is like this is all unfolding from, from his mind, but it also feels as if it's divinely inspired. You know, it all... It all sort of came to him. And there are times where as planned out and as detailed as all the blocking and we see we see people just like in a play come come from off stage and move props around or change things with the characters as as planned as it is. It still somehow has the overall effect that you're watching it all be made up before your eyes. Yeah, I think that's the reason for the set decorators that we see right. is it gives us a sense of oh something could go wrong like they they might miss their mark of handing this prop right when it's needed or moving this panel right when it's yes. needed if the panels and props appeared magically exactly all the time even though that's really what they're doing right because mm -hmm. the prop people are actors then it would not be as tantalizing. But because yeah. we're getting this supposed peak behind the scenes, we feel like we're in on the creation. Mm -hmm. It's involving the audience yes. in on the storytelling. And I think it's also interesting, you know, to note that Dahl frames this as a true story. Henry Sugar is a true story. It took place. The man's name was different. And then what happens here is we're also realizing, okay, but what we're going to see is the adornment 
and mm-hmm. embellishment that a grand master storyteller can bring. You give five people the basic outlines of this Henry Sugar life, right? Spoiled guy, has an epiphany, learns a skill, decides to use it for good. Okay, tell me that story. It's going to look different and probably be boring for four out of the five people, but you get Dahl to tell that story. And here then you get Anderson to tell Dahl's story through his own creativity. And we are, again, recognizing things like embellishment and adornment and the creativity that goes into that. So I love that aspect as well. And I just have to add that not only does the movie show us exactly what you described, but the movie also tells us exactly how that way more conventional version of this story. Oh yeah, that's a great bet. Right? I (laughs) mean, so so that is again involving you in the construction. Another moment of that is when Ben Kingsley sits down to get the wisdom from Ayoade's yogi and the set guy, the the person comes out and moves him from the right side of the frame to the left, right? Like Mm. the actor sat in the wrong side of the of the frame. (laughs) For the shot. Yeah. Sometimes in these movies too you'll get that little awkward pause before the action begins as if someone has just off screen said action and then they move they move immediately into action but to go back to my point there with the conventional story this movie gives us an ending that for me it gives us a version of an ending that Josh I was ready to go along with it, it was so it was so conventional that I just assumed, yeah, that's that's probably I started filling in the blanks the moment it was presented to me of how this was going to end. And quite frankly, I enjoyed the movie so much I might have bought it. The alternative then, ending, you mean? Exactly. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the first ending. Right. Yeah. And then to get the <laughs> ending we actually get over the next eight to ten minutes takes the the whole film, of course, to another level. Yeah. Absolutely. The other cinematic technique that I think is worth highlighting with Henry Sugar, because it's it's maybe the most effective use of montage across all, all four, is that training session when Henry is taking over, what is it, two, maybe three years to train himself to be able to see in this way with his eyes closed and essentially read a card by looking at it and seeing through to the other side. So we get here through montage, you know, the costume and set changes help with this too and the editing, but the, the, um, how about the use of the aspect ratios? I don't know if I've seen, it's almost a rectangular mm-hmm. aspect ratio we get for each of these moments in time when Henry starts training, I think he's slightly to the right. So the whole screen itself is more of a traditional, you know, rectangular horizontal movie frame, but then we get Henry in this vertical rectangle and that suddenly moves to the far left for the next shot of like a couple months later. Then I think the next shot is right in the middle, smack dab in the middle. Again, a rectangular vertical aspect ratio. Then you get the lovely circle at the end in the Mm -hmm. center of the frame when he's achieved his goal. I think, I think he says something like the time had come. And just another use of, you know, these techniques that you couldn't sure. do anywhere else. So I just, I feel like I have to emphasize how cinematic this is for people yeah. who might, who might be still held back by how much we've been talking about mm-hmm. the language and the words, which is all great stuff. But these things are movies to people. They are movies. Yeah. It's the old Iris effect that so many great filmmakers have used and here. Anderson is using it well. The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar is currently available exclusively on Netflix. Next up, 
We'll talk about the swan, but first, we wanted to list a couple of ways that you can help the show. Whether you're a longtime listener or you just discovered us, would you please consider giving us a rating or a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts? Your support will help us reach new listeners. Another way to support us, please join the Film Spotting family. You get to listen early and ad-free. You get Producer Sam's weekly newsletter. You might, depending on your tier, get access to our monthly bonus shows. This past month, we shared our Madness, Film Spotting Madness 2024 preview, talked about the best films of the 1950s, and went over the 96 films. We didn't talk about all 96, but we did discuss in detail the shortlist that is available now on Letterboxd and available over at filmspotting.net. Just go to filmspotting.net slash madness. In October, it is, of course, the month of Halloween, Josh, and Mike Merrigan, the godfather of film spotting madness, did actually win the family tournament last year. I think it was the family tournament, not the overall one, but maybe he won the overall. Uh, Someone really needs to take... I think it was records. family. Either way, he did better than any of us. Yeah, he did. He did really well. Or was it Brett Merriman who won the family one? Or was that the year before? Time is a flat circle. <laughs> All we know is we owe we owe Mike Merrigan something. I was going to send him, you know, the usual film spotting prize pack. He said, hey, you know, I do some podcasting. I love horror movies. What if I came on for a film spotting family bonus show where we did like a horror movie draft? And that's what we're going to do coming up in October. So if you want to hear that, the only way you can hear that is by becoming a Film Spotting family member. You also can get access to the complete Film Spotting archive. Learn more at filmspottingfamily.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ernie had been given a rifle for his birthday. He took the gun and a box of bullets and went out to see what he could kill. Outside Raymond's house, he stuck two fingers in his mouth and gave a long, shrill whistle. Raymond was Ernie's best friend. He lived four doors away. He held up the rifle over his head. Gripes, said Raymond. We can have some fun with that. A bit there from The Swan, the second of the four Wes Anderson road doll adaptations that dropped on Netflix here in the past couple of weeks. And it might be the saddest of the oh. four, Josh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or or let's just go ahead and say it is <laughs> undoubtedly the saddest of the four while still having to go back to my word from the previous discussion, having these moments that are incredibly invigorating. I'd love to hear for you what moments stood out as as the most invigorating and i guess is the swan truly working on a different level or in a different register for you than henry sugar i mean not entirely it has its funny moments it has its moments of clarity clarifying signature moments it's i think it ends in a devastating place and mm-hmm. hit me more so that way the second time the basic narrative here is um, two older bullies um, go out with a gun to the fields, come across a younger boy who's um, birding, and 
um, t- they they tie him up. They uh, you know tie him to train tracks at one point. Train goes over him. They leave him there, mm-hmm. and then I don't think we want to you know say what happens after that. Though it does involve a swan. It does involve a swan, uh, and I was a little shocked. And this is, as I said, one that I had read. So I knew what was coming. And maybe this is an example for me of, um, it definitely hit me more powerfully as a visual experience. And it involves that swan and visualizing, I think, that one element um, there at the end, the final mm-hmm. image of this short. Again, I don't want to give it away. Is just, um, you know, a, a, a thud to the chest. If we want to get more intellectual about it, This is also going back to that idea of all these being a meditation on narration, fascinating Mm -hmm. in terms of how Anderson chooses to narrate this. And we need to talk about Rupert Friend here, who is the narrator. He was the cowboy in Asteroid City. I think that was his first Anderson film. So enjoyable there. Here he is the narrator of this story and also Peter Watson, the younger boy, the victim in the story. But that's not something we completely understand at the beginning, right? No. It's We see a younger boy playing Peter Watson mm-hmm. who gets a few lines. We just think he's a narrator. He's we just think he's a narrator. And he is also, at a certain point, this is well into the short, he says, this happened to me 27 years ago. My name is Peter Watson. And that's where, like, sort of my my whole mind started to shift is mm-hmm. is like okay what is anderson up to here and how is he going to how is he going to handle this and there's a couple of things we need to talk about here we need to talk about the feat of performance this is by rupert friend he's amazing he, he is so amazing he is mm-hmm. slipping from one from narrator to peter watson and it took me the second time watching to realize this he's playing quote on quote unquote, playing the bullies, because when he delivers their lines of dialogue, he adopts a different voice. He pulls different features. And there are occasions where he'll even move differently, right? To mimic them. And the way he slips from one to the other is brilliant. Um, All right. I'm going to stop there because I've been going on long (laughs) enough, but I do want to say another thing about narration to that point. But, but yeah, it it sounds like we're in agreement how sad this was. Um, But what else did you make of it? Well, I'm I'm with you, I think, on everything you've expressed, including, obviously, my feelings about Friends' performance. And I, I had Sam, our producer, in my head, as I usually do, when I'm thinking about how we're approaching some of these conversations. And I could hear him saying, you know, it might be fun to do a little bit like we did with The Godfather. There's so many good performances and performers here. Like, maybe we should kind of rank them and talk about which one stood out. And Josh, I tried to go through the exercise and I finally just gave up. (laughs) That's what I've been doing on social media all week and enlisting help. And I just keep going in circles. (laughs) That's it. Because as soon as I think it has to be fines, then it's like, no, it's actually Cumberbatch. And then I'm like, no, it's actually Rupert Friend. And then, of course, I go, and what about Dev Patel and Ben Kingsley too, right? You can't leave leave anyone out here. But those voices, to go back to what you said about – reading these stories and thinking about being in that mode as a dad. If there are any moms or dads out there that might actually read the swan to your kids, I think I'd recommend it, even though it's, it's heavy material and the heaviest of the four Rupert friend has probably forever ruined it because (laughs) I don't know how you could ever come close to matching the way he 
so swiftly embodies all of these characters. And there's there's a key thing that happens here in his performance that speaks to this this blurred line that this story in particular offers us. And it's near the end or it's at the big moment of of crisis and emotion in the film. And up to this point, at least watching the wonderful story of Henry Sugar and up to this point in this film, the narrator is usually pretty detached. It's when we get the character, like the that's that example I gave, we actually get the character physically representing what the narrator says or verbally expressing it, that we really get the full heft of the of the moment. The narrator is usually fairly detached. And at this moment, Josh, that detachment completely goes away. Friend leans completely into the emotion of it. It it swells within him. It rises within him as he's recounting it. He's recounting this moment. And then as the moment occurs, there's just this this pause afterwards. Again, this thing is all about pace, pace, pace. Yeah. And the use of pauses here, there's another really good one that that follows it that I'll get to. But that pause in the performance just lets you kind of wallow in the the devastation of this moment. But I, I really love how that line is crossed where now it's as if he's he's back in his old body as a kid re-experiencing exactly what he was experiencing in that moment. Did you notice there's only one instance, if I caught this correctly, where friend slash Peter Watson slash narrator uses I, where he says, I refuse, I said. Mm -hmm. And that is where I think we see the kid you're talking about come to the forefront. Yes. Um, I, I think it's where it involves the swan and the bullies yes. tell him to do That's something. The moment. That's and the moment. he says, I refuse, mm -hmm. I said. Otherwise, he will say, little Peter Watson You're did right. this. Little Peter Watson did that. Yeah, that's where he crosses. That's where he that crosses character. the line. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, it's the it's a blurred line, as you described it so well. That is exactly what we're experiencing here. And what this story ultimately, to me, seems to be capturing is the way narration can help process a terrible experience or a terrible memory, choosing how you are going to narrate it. And this is what we're watching this adult do, remembering this thing that happened to him. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's all related. He's The way this story is being told is allowing Peter Watson as an adult to purge it mm -hmm. from a safe distance. Yeah. And the fascination of watching these 17 minutes is to see him tip a toe over mm -hmm. the line and back, back and forth. And then, of course, we also have Ray Fiennes as Roald Dahl popping in, in crucial moments. And, and what I loved about that, there's a moment where he describes the sort of person little Peter Watson is. Roald Dahl jumps in and we cut away to him in his writing hut again. And that's almost like he as narrator is, is going to carry the burden for Peter Watson, for this line, mm -hmm. this one line or this, this he's giving Peter Watson to your point about pauses, a chance to catch his breath and, and say, here, I'll take the story for now, Peter, I'll take it for these couple of lines. And then when you're ready, I'm going to give it back to you 
and you can finish it. It's, it's just beautiful. Some people, when they have taken too much and been driven beyond the point of endurance, simply crumble and collapse and give up. There are others, however, though they are not many, who will for some reason always be unconquerable. You meet them in time of war and also in time of peace. And that might be, and there's so many to choose from, that moment you're describing might actually be Fine's best moment in any of these films. The, the warmth to his voice, the yeah. sensitivity he takes on, and there, that long pause. There is a pause as the camera cuts back to him. He doesn't immediately jump in. Like Rupert, friend as Peter Watson, we get a moment to process it. We get a moment to acknowledge how harrowing this must have been. I love both of those pauses in particular in this film, and I'm with you completely. I saw it similarly in terms of this being about this character, this man, reliving this trauma, but getting through the artifice of it all, getting to own it, getting to now take ownership of it. That doesn't mean that you're still not going to have those moments like the one we're describing where it seems to overwhelm you, where it rises up and then you have to to quell it, but you are going to be able to have some distance from it and have power over it and and potentially overcome it here. The other moment that's so much fun visually, even though it's also kind of scary, and it's the one, Josh, that immediately follows where he says, I'm the boy. I'm the boy that had to do this. I'm the boy just as the train tracks are revealed is when he reveals his true identity and he gets down on the tracks. He even kind of does it, if I think back on it, a little a little eagerly almost, you know, mm-hmm. almost yeah, he's like, swift. He moves swiftly. Almost, yeah. Almost like he's acknowledging that, that I'm now the one doing it. I'm playing a role. It's not really me. I'm playing a role and I'm safe. And he lays down on the tracks and here's again, where we get a use of one of the frames within the frames. Anderson cuts twice to the point of view from Peter's head, looking between his legs and his feet are sticking up in the air and the yeah. feet, you can see the motion I'm making. His feet are up like this, just like, you know, a filmmaker when he's trying to, you know, that cliche shot of a director looking at the, what the camera shot is on a film set. That's exactly what his feet are doing, framing that. And then how about that, that use of effect? I won't call it effects because there's nothing really special about it. And yet it's, it's really quite special to watch. When the train comes, we mm. don't ever see a train. The only train we see is on a little drawing. He holds that, up. That he holds up. <laughs> yeah. But otherwise, we know that the train is overtaking him only because of the sound design, because of the the use of the background, as if all the, the grass or weeds next to him are being blown yeah. by him. Rupert Friend's acting suggests that something intense is acting. And here again... Another great use of language. The train came on with an explosive blast, like a gun went off in his head. With the explosion came a tearing, screaming wind like a hurricane blowing down his nostrils and into his lungs. The noise was shattering, the wind choked him. He felt as if he were being eaten alive and swallowed up in the belly of a screaming, murderous monster. And then it was over. What more do you need? Yeah, you you don't need to overemphasize it. You're so right. You just give those couple little touches that you described and let the words do the rest. That moment where he's on the tracks it also involves the the cinematic technique that 
you know, a lot of what you described was cinematic as well, obviously, but the one technique I wanted to call out for this short, and it has to do with camera angles and when the frame actually tilts. So the camera is tilting here, but this is just after friend lays down on the train tracks. Mm -hmm. His head then is at the top of the screen and the ground is running from top to bottom on the right side of the screen. And of course, yeah, you could say it's neat, right? Anderson detractors will always, will say, oh, he's so neat with his tricks. But this is absolutely capturing his disorientation and his fear, right? And then the camera tilts right side up to suggest that now the train is coming. Like we like the fear, we've had the mm-hmm. fear, but then we go back down because we're not going to stay there because what we're afraid of is actually going to come. So again, only cinema could do that. And we get a similar use of an overhead shot in the fourth of these films, Poison. And just when you, maybe, I don't want to because I love most of what Anderson always does with the camera. If you were going to write it off as something too ostentatious, the more you watch, you realize how practical it is. It's a completely practical shot that serves the scene and the characters in that moment. We may get there as we get further into our conversation about these four Wes Anderson films. We've we've got two down. Josh, they are all available exclusively on Netflix. We'd love to hear your thoughts about them. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. And the other thing is, because there's only been two pictures of theirs I haven't liked, mm-hmm. and that would be the Hudsucker Proxy, yeah, which uh, I don't even care for either, and this one. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that decor got involved in both of those pictures. I noticed their art direction more of this picture in Hudsucker. And the other thing, wealthy people. Hudsucker, and here, the uh, well, big Lebowski. The, the so Lebowski. they shouldn't make any more movies about wealthy people? Um, they better be careful. And the Cone brothers never made another film about wealthy people again. The power of Siskel and Ebert. Behold, Josh. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> that was Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert from their 1998 review of The Big Lebowski. Siskel, a surprising thumbs down on that one, or maybe not so surprising. The Big Lebowski was not a consensus hit with critics upon its release. Next week, there will be many more surprising thumbs down as our friend Matt Singer joins us to talk about his new book, Can't Wait for This, Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. We will link to more information about that book. I think it's official street date. I should have it in front of me. I apologize, Matt, but it's coming up. It's around the 20th of October, I think, officially when it's released. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, 23rd, I feel like, or 24th, something like that. We will have more information, of course, next week as we talk to Matt about the book, what inspired him to write it, though we have a pretty good idea because we were similarly inspired by these critics. And we'll get into this, obviously, a lot more as we set up the top five. But the way we're approaching it right now is there is a pretty healthy list of movies that are generally regarded as good or widely acclaimed that both of those critics gave negative reviews to. And myself, Josh, and Matt are all going to go through the exercise of finding five movies, the top five movies that they disliked, that we really liked. And and that's also partly because we want to keep it positive. They may have been negative about it. We want to single out movies we love as opposed to talking about movies that maybe they loved and we don't care for so much. Right. And lest we get too smug, I think... 
we should keep in the back of our minds throughout this exercise, someone could go back and look back at the, what, however many years I've been doing this show, let alone mm-hmm. reviewing professionally and make a very similar list of my reviews. So that's, that's what I'm going to be thinking about as, as I, uh, research this and, and talk about it. The next time you take a week off, I'm doing the top five yeah, movies you got wrong. <laughs> the problem is, the problem is, haven't. I've got 500 candidates. I don't, <laughs> I don't know where to start, Josh. If you've got thoughts that you want to share about Siskel and Ebert, about movies they got wrong, we'd love to hear them. Feedback at filmspotting.net. We may just share them on next week's show. Sad bit of news here over the past few days as we're taping this, we learned of the passing of UK director Terence Davies. He was 77 years old. Davies made nine features between 1988 and 2021, all of them acclaimed critically. His earliest films were autobiographical, all set in the Liverpool of his birth. He made a trilogy of short films in the 70s. His debut feature was Distant Voices, Still Lives in 88. He was 40 already when he made that. And then The Long Day closes in 92. In 2000, he adapted Edith Wharton's The House of Mirth with Gillian Anderson. It was another 11 years until The Deep Blue Sea with Rachel Weisz and Tom Hiddleston. That was an adaptation of a 1952 stage play. Following that was 2015's Sunset Song. In 2017, the Emily Dickinson biopic, A Quiet Passion with Synthony Nixon. And then his final film, one I remember recommending on the show, or it at least came up at some point in our end of year talk, even though it, it wasn't among my top 10, Benediction about the World War I era poet, war hero, and war critic, Siegfried Sassoon. Alas, Davies was never nominated for an Oscar. Probably fair to say Richard Brody over The New Yorker, Davies' biggest champion. He recently wrote about him as the greatest British director. So I guess that means he's ranking him ahead of David Lean, ahead of Hitchcock, the likes of those masters. So a lot of affection from Brody for Davies. Here's what he wrote. Although Davies was among the most accomplished of filmmakers, he remained a perpetual beginner, always on the verge of breaking out, but never quite getting there. He reached old age with too few films made, a grievous loss to the history of cinema, but with the ardor, the urgency, and the curiosity of youth unabated. Hmm. Looking back at those films, I have some blind spots to fill in, but I feel, I suppose, a little bit good about the fact that I've seen six of them and feel like I have a pretty good sense of Davies' work and a pretty healthy appreciation for his work. Distant Voices Still Lives, Josh, was one that I remember being essential viewing in a British film and Thatcherism class I took back in the day. Deep Blue Sea, very good. I really went for Sunset Song in 2015. And as I said, I like Benediction. A Quiet Passions one that I really need to revisit. And even though I was mixed on it, I would I would recommend, and I would definitely recommend Cynthia Nixon's performance. I think our producer, Sam, had it as his favorite film of 2017. Just absolutely swooned for it. I think Melissa Taminga out in Washington, another one of our friends there, adores that film. I'm, I'm perfectly willing to accept that I probably got that one wrong and should revisit it. The Long Day Closes is the one for me, Josh. It's his most popular at least as listed on Letterboxd. And that's the big regret for me that uh, maybe now with his passing, I'll have to take some time to catch up with. Yeah, the word that jumps out to me from Brody's comments, just from the couple I've seen, I have way more work to do with Davies and look forward to that. But the word he has there is ardor. I think of 
the deep blue sea particularly throbbing with that. And also there just seems to be a sumptuousness maybe mm-hmm. in so many of his films. And and again, Deep Blue Sea and I think it was Sunset Song. I've also seen the visual sum, sumptuousness was at the forefront that, that matched the emotional tenor of those films in many ways too. A couple of notes we wanted to share highlighting some opportunities to come hang out with us, hang out with Film Spotting. This weekend, the second annual Refocus Film Festival celebrating the art of adaptation is going on in Iowa City, Iowa, over at the Great Film Scene Theater. Also happening this weekend is the Iowa City Book Festival. In order, here are your opportunities. 10 a.m. Saturday morning, you can come here. a Josh Larson, Fear Not Book Talk. That's happening at the Iowa City Public Library. Great spot right in the Ped Mall downtown in Iowa City. Looking forward to that. Later that night, 10 o'clock, a screening of The Shining at Film Scene that all three of us will be at, myself, Josh, and Sam, and one of the three of us, and it's not me, is going to be doing an introduction of that film. Yeah, this ties into the book, you know, this uh, Christian appreciation of horror movies that I've been traveling around getting the word out. This is another great opportunity to do that. So I'm thankful to refocus for allowing this. And who wouldn't want to see The Shining late at night with a packed crowd? So I won't spend too much time introducing that a little bit about it as an adaptation. I just finished this week the Stephen King novel for the first time, and that's sort of the focus of refocus or works of adaptation. So we'll talk about that a little bit. I'll talk about how it ties in to the book, to Fear Not itself, and then we'll all get the crap scared out of us. So can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Then on Sunday, 1.30 in the afternoon, a live film spotting taping. We're calling it The Enigma of Werner Herzog. Myself and Josh will spend about an hour talking about Herzog, talking about him as one of our most daring filmmakers and really highlighting some of the films that we think. We're still finalizing the exact language and approach here, but think of it either as kind of the essential Herzog or even to use the parlance we've used before with a couple top fives, a starter pack. Maybe you know of Herzog by reputation, but you don't really know where to start. We're going to help you figure out where to start. Looking forward to this so much. It came at a great time. I, I just revisited Fitzcarraldo and Aguirre, The Wrath of God, a couple months ago, and loved both of those, and am quickly catching up on my homework, Adam, for some of the potentially essential Herzog that I haven't seen. So Little Dieter Needs to Fly, knocked that out over lunch, um, and actually watched My Best Fiend, yes. <laughs> which is... <laughs> Is something. So it we'll is see, something. We'll see how we tackle all of those over at Refocus. Yeah. And why why Werner Herzog? Well, besides the fact that it's Werner Herzog, he's got an autobiography out. It's coming out in the next week or two. I have a copy of that and have been trying to fit in as much reading as I can, Josh, ahead of our live taping. But he's then going to be at Refocus later that night. He's closing it out down at the Englert Theater. Great old theater right in the heart of downtown Iowa City, just a couple blocks away from film scene. Thinking about it, the quote we used from The Big Lebowski to come into the segment reminds me that in 1998, I was here in Iowa City. I saw The Big Lebowski from the balcony of the Englert. In 97, I saw Titanic at the Englert. Great place to see 
any type of event. I've been to movies, I've been to concerts there, I've been to stand up there, and now I'm going to go to this book event. They're calling it Herzog in Conversation. So come to our discussion earlier in the day. Hopefully it will set you up nicely for the conversation later that night at the Englert. You can get more information at filmspotting.net slash events or go to refocusfilmfestival.org. When you click on our event, enter the code Herzog, H-E-R-Z-O-G, to get your free ticket. So I have been traveling, spreading the word on Fear Not, a Christian appreciation of horror movies. And I wanted to give a quick thanks to a number of film spotting listeners. I was able to meet way over there in Calgary, Canada. Great time. I spoke at Ambrose University and then also at the University of Calgary and was at the Calgary Public Library. Their central location there is gorgeous. It's only a couple of years old and didn't know if I'd see any film spotting listeners, but yes, indeed, John Duran drove three hours to come. So I am nice. so grateful to you for that, John. He said he's been listening for about 10 years. Also got a chance to meet Diego Bechtold, who is right there in Calgary. Good to talk to Diego. Kevin Dory came up and said hello and also was able to meet Trevor and Adam. So yeah, it's just always, you know, when you're multiple states, let alone a country away from home to see some friendly film spotting faces um, is always a joy. So thanks to all of you who showed up for that. I am going to have, in addition to the book events at Refocus, the only Chicago area book event I have planned is coming up at the end of this month. It's going to be October 28th. And this will be at Facets here in Chicago, where there will be a screening of Talk to Me. That was the Australian possession horror film from earlier this year, which is very wild. I'm going to introduce Talk to Me. And then afterwards, right there in Facets Cafe, we'll have an open discussion about the movie, how it might fit into the book, and really whatever you want to talk about. So this is the closest thing to a book launch type party I'm having here in Chicago. I'd love to see as many of you there as can make it. If you want to get tickets for that, go to facets.org and we'll link to all this in the show notes, of course. And I'll go ahead and preemptively approve Josh putting some drinks on the film spotting tab afterwards if you come out. So oh incentive. Oh, wow. Okay. You heard it here, everyone. <laughs> it's going to be Seattle all over again. Can't wait. We do want to alert you also to what's happening on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show right now. It is part two of their Alien Nation pairing. So they're looking at Brian Duffield's new No One Will Save You. That's on Hulu in the light of Jonathan Glazer's great Under the Skin, which if you have never seen or want to revisit for this conversation, you can catch right now on Max, probably find it on VOD. And there is, of course, always your local library. The Next Picture Show looks at cinema's present via its past. Your hosts there, Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. What does Marcellus Wallace look like? What? What country are you from? What? what? What ain't no country I ever heard of. They speak English and what? What? English, mother... Do you speak it? Yes. Then you know what I'm saying. Yes. Describe what Marcellus Wallace looks like. 
Josh is now getting hungry for a big kahuna burger. That is a tasty burger. Time for some deeply flawed so you, film spotting were, pull results. I can't help it. You were so afraid I wasn't going to be able to pull that one. I knew you wouldn't. <laughs> you're, you're like, the <laughs> listeners will be disappointed if someone right. doesn't say it. <laughs> Time for some deeply flawed film spotting poll results. That was, of course, Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction a couple of weeks back, anticipating Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill Volume 1 celebrating its 20th anniversary. We asked you, who is your favorite Tarantino actor slash collaborator? And yes, we did decide to limit it to three films, at least three appearances in Tarantino films. Your options were Zoe Bell, four films, Harvey Keitel, three, Samuel L. Jackson, seven, Michael Madsen, five, Tim Roth, three, Kurt Russell, three, or you could go Uma Thurman, also three. This one wasn't that close, Josh. No. uh, Yeah. Zoe Bell, four films, 4%. And we'll run through these because they're all packed together. Michael Madsen, 6%. Harvey Keitel, 7%. Tim Roth, 8%. Kurt Russell, 9%. Uma Thurman, you know, gave it a good fight, came out with 22% of the vote, but no one was taking this from Samuel L. Jackson. He won it with 46%. Josh Ashton Miller says, I'm always a step behind when Adam starts talking about the latest deeply flawed film spotting poll. I usually don't see the flaws until someone points them out, but this time it's glaring. And I'm I'm going to, inspired by Werner Herzog, I'm going to really lean into this, Josh. How can you set up the rules in such a way that leaves out Christoph Waltz? Hans Landa and Dr. King Schultz are two of the most memorable characters in history, a combination of Waltz's diction and Tarantino's writing. You can't leave Waltz off this list. But the rules being what they are, Samuel L. Jackson walks away with this poll, and he he takes his wallet with him. Here's Andy Mitchell Gregory, one-time production assistant. One of the easiest votes in recent film spotting poll history. Samuel L. Jackson and Tarantino are, to my mind, in the pantheon of director-actor pairs, right up there with De Niro and Scorsese, Hawk and Linklater, Dietrich and von Sternberg. Jackson's best work is with Tarantino, and Tarantino's work looks and sounds so much better when Jackson is involved. And he makes a good case. Rob Morrison says, love Samuel L., but it has to be Tim Roth. Roth makes Reservoir Dogs, and without Reservoir Dogs, there is no Tarantino. Plus, the coffee shop intro crashing into the thunderous Dick Dale chords let us know we're in for one hell of a ride with Pulp Fiction. One more comment here from Luke Stanaway. Check out the big poll on film spotting. You did it. Sort of, Josh. No, that's a paraphrase. <laughs> yeah, it's a paraphrase. Yeah. Doesn't count. For me, like many others, it has to be Sam Jackson. When you say Samuel L. Jackson or Quentin Tarantino, the first image in my brain is that of Jules Winfield and his glorious Jerry Curl brandishing a gun. However, I am somewhat appalled at the lack of Michael Madsen appreciation in the voting. While Jackson is still the clear winner, a case can be made for Madsen as number two. Tarantino is responsible for the best moments of Madsen's career. Vic Vega alone oozes so much charisma and terrifying menace in Reservoir Dogs that he deserves a special shout-out. And Bud, in Kill Bill, is one of the MVPs of the story of the bride. The way Madsen can slow a moment down with his signature squint and rasp really gives the film an extra sense of heartbroken melancholy. In the end, Michael Madsen may not be synonymous with Quentin Tarantino, but Tarantino is definitely synonymous with Madsen. Well, Luke, I'm with you that Michael Madsen probably does deserve more respect here. Certainly more respect than finishing down in second to last place. For me, he's second or third. He's definitely in the conversation, but I'm going 
with Samuel L. Jackson. Thanks to everyone who voted and shared a comment. Our new poll has us looking ahead to Killers of the Flower Moon. Martin Scorsese's latest is clocking in, Josh, at a healthy, a robust three hours, 26 minutes. So we're asking, what is your favorite three-plus-hour film of the last 20 years? This may be, as they all inevitably become, a deeply flawed film-spotting poll question, but at least you really can't question the main criterion. We have run times. It had to be at least 180 minutes. <laughs> yes, and I really hope Sam did the exact research here. Or were, you know, the flood of emails that Avengers Endgame was three hours and two minutes, not three hours and one minute. I don't know yeah. if any of us can take, but let's you know, just hope I, I, he's got it right. I really think I last thought of this when I saw one of the options we're going to mention. It's a film from this year. I remember seeing that the runtime was three hours, one minute and thinking, I don't know that if I was the director, I couldn't find a way to get it down to an even three hours or even better. I'd try to do the thing that I'll put this in your terminology, Josh. I do the thing that some basketball players do where mm. they don't want to be perceived as seven foot. So they say that they're really like six, nine or six, 10 or six, 11 at the most. I might go two fifty nine. Let's cut it down to two fifty nine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, if it's in your contract too, like bring it in under three. Yeah, I don't know. You think you could cut out of a three hour movie? You think you could cut sixty seconds? I agree. Well, why don't you give us the options that Sam came up with? All indeed, going over the one hundred eighty minute threshold. Yeah, Avengers Endgame. That is the three hour one minute one. Then we have Drive My Car. This is the twenty twenty two Best Picture nominee from director Raisuke Hamaguchi. That's a clean three hours. I mean, come clean. on, Hamaguchi. Yeah. You could have shaved 60 seconds. Scorsese's The Irishman, three hours, 29 minutes. Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, three hours, 21 minutes. Oppenheimer, three hours, one minute. Another mm -hmm. three hours, one minute. That's it. Last year's RRR from director S.S. Rajamuli, three hours, six minutes. Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street. He hit three hours. There you go. On the dot. A pro. With a that pro. One. And- will allow you to choose other for the, you know, beloved, unknown, artsy, mm -hmm. Bulgarian movie that's four hours and 27 <laughs> minutes that you're appalled, just appalled it was not offered as an you option know, in this poll. We have one of those. There was at least one person appalled that who bows an elephant sitting still did not make the list. That or, was me. That was me. Yeah, it was you. Nuri Bilga Jalon's Winter Sleep, Olivier Asayas's Carlos. Come on. A little respect. Peter Jackson's King Kong was over three hours. Are you okay. kidding me? See, that could, yeah, I really like that movie, but that could have cut an hour. Avatar, The Way of Water. Oh, I felt every, every second of that. David Lynch's Inland Empire didn't remember that that was over three hours. Hamaguchi's got another one, Happy Hour in 2015. And recently we all did experience Damien Chazelle's Babylon over three hours. We Josh. did. We did experience it. We'll, we'll leave it there. So are you, are you writing in one of those others? Are you going with an other that's off the table or are you picking one of the options included in the poll? For me, it's between Return of the King and The Irishman. I think they're the two movies here, to your point, that you started this conversation out as they need every one of those minutes. Mm -hmm. I do feel like if you took time away from both of them, something would be lost. I don't know if that's the case for the other titles we have here. Of course, this is relative, right? I, I love both of those films. I think Irishman is among Scorsese's best, which is really saying something. 
Yet I think I'd probably go with Return of the King just because if I was locked in a room and said, you need to get Irishman under three hours or you need to get Return of the King under three hours, I feel like I would come away with a much worse Return of the King. Okay. That makes any I, sense. I, I like I like your approach. I like the criterion you've employed. I'm I'm just thinking about it in terms of my my pure pleasure, the experience I had with these movies. And even though I do like Return of the King, we've talked about those movies. I gave it a positive review. Yeah. Probably last for me only ahead of Avengers Endgame. It comes down to the Scorsese's for me. Obviously, we've we've split infamously on the Wolf of Wall Street. It's between that and the Irishman. And I guess I might have to look at my Scorsese rankings to mm. see which one I have higher. I don't remember. It yeah, probably which, is Wolf. But which but, story, yeah, which story needed that? And that's why I'm leaning towards time. Irishman. I okay. think that's a really good point. And I think that's why I'm probably leaning towards voting the Irishman. We would love to hear your picks. And of course, any comments you'd like to share, you can vote at filmspotting.net. In the afternoon, the rat man came to the petrol station. He sidled up the driveway with a soft, stealthy gait. His feet made no noise at all on the gravel. He had an army knapsack slung over one shoulder. He wore an old-fashioned corduroy jacket with large pockets. His corduroy trousers were tied around the knees with lengths of white string. Hello? Yes? Rodent operative. We get back into our conversation about Wes Anderson's quartet of new short films with that clip from The Rat Catcher. It's the third... Of the four shorts, based on Roald Dahl's 1953 story of the same name, finds returns here, yes, as Dahl, but also as the rat catcher. And I think that bit we heard, Adam, is a great example of how Anderson doesn't need to gussy up the words with much more, but finds gives us just a little bit more with that sidling up the drive. Uh -huh. <laughs> that is just so amusing. He's brilliant here. The narrator this time around is Richard Ayoade. He plays the newspaper man in the village that is called the rat catcher. Rupert Friend plays a skeptical petrol station employee named Claude Cubbage. We also get... Oh, so, so happy that we get some stop motion. <laughs> yeah. We get a stop motion rat here. Like the swan, the rat catcher runs about 17 minutes. The final Anderson short that also runs about 17 minutes is Poison. It's based on a 1950 doll short story. It's never stated explicitly, but it's implied that the setting is India during England's occupation of the country. Benedict Cumberbatch is Henry Pope. We meet him lying on a bed motionless and sweating profusely. He is discovered by Dev Patel's character named Woods. Pope tells Woods that there is a deadly snake, a crite, asleep on his stomach. Woods fetches a doctor Ben Kingsley's Dr. Ganderby to help. Now, Josh, I vowed that not only was I not really going to devolve into a ranking of the performances here, I also wasn't going to get into a ranking of these four films. Frankly, I find list making vulgar. <clears throat> I'm going to resist that. Excuse me. I'm going to resist that temptation mostly. I say mostly because I am curious between these last two. Did you have a clear favorite, the rat catcher or poison? And even if you do, is Wes Anderson batting a thousand with these doll adaptations? Batting a thousand. That's yeah, not in doubt. You know, poison is the one that gave me the most pause. Does that, if that makes sense, that, mm -hmm. that I had to 
think about a little bit more. And I think it's probably for the way it ends, which maybe we can get into, or maybe we want to leave and not spoil. But let me get to the rat catcher first, because it's, I mean, if we can allow that favorite doesn't always mean best. Can I say it's my favorite? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it certainly, it certainly has probably a few of my favorite moments from all four films, even though, and here I am doing it. I'm just going to say Henry Sugar's still the one that I think is the juiciest film. And that makes sense because of its length, but you're right. There are so many delightful moments in the rat catcher. And it's fines too. I mean, to have him, to give him the chance to be the reserved though, as you pointed out, he knows when to be gentle or quiet or warmth. I think you said warmth. Mm -hmm. He knows when to warm up his delivery of dolls, droll lines when he plays doll here the fun he is having playing this rat catcher who the essential joke is that he looks, acts, behaves like a rat, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this guy does. Has That's... the black eyes, the yellow teeth. <laughs> and the fun, I, I don't, I think like if I'm have, having trouble sleeping, I'm just going to imagine in my mind, Ray Fiennes going down that little alley gingerly walking like a rat. And and I know I will just let out a soft chuckle and drift off to sleep with that as my last thought because he is so wonderful in this part and he's having such a good time and it's in such opposition to to his performance as Dahl. So it's like as that, you know, that merry-go-round of our favorite performances goes around mm-hmm. in my head. It, it, like the the ride from Dahl to the rat catcher is just so amazing for fines but this is it also ends on a perfectly mordant doll note so yeah. just when you think oh this is the light one this is the funny one like we could just chuckle about and move on with our lives no it ends on like you know a really creepy unsettling note so that's great but let me jump back on the performance merry-go-round and talk about richard Ayoada here he might be the best one and we want to talk about what everyone is doing best you know, if friend is doing the best at jumping from one persona to the next, I think Patel is doing the best of drawing us in with looking at the camera and making space for us and making us co-conspirators, hmm. co-storytellers. I think that's okay. Patel's strength. I love Ayoade's ability to stare down into the camera with such droll sincerity mm-hmm. yeah, and not blink at all not move a muscle, just pin us to our seats. And how about the way, maybe my favorite moment in all of these, Ayoade is this newspaper man. He's been listening to the rat catcher's spiel, talk about how you got to be if you're going to catch a rat. And he just blurts out to the guy's face. You've almost got to be a rat yourself, I said. It slipped out an error before I had time to stop myself, and I couldn't really help it because I was looking at the man at the time. But the effect it had upon him was surprising. That's it, he cried. Now you've got it. Now you've almost got to be a rat yourself. Yes. And immediately knowing he shouldn't have said that. But Ayoade's face, it's like he's guilty, but also bemused that mm-hmm. he actually made that mistake. Yeah. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's such a combination of ex, of emotions and expression. He's just, he's just as wonderful as Fines is in this bit. So yeah, I'll get to, I'll get to the cinematic technique that I think is so crucial to the rat catcher, but, but um, where did, where did this one kind of fall? How did it hit with you? Let's put it in that, yeah. those terms. How did this hit with you? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It, 
it is hard for me to pit these films against each other, and I'm happy I'm going to decline to do that, though I do suppose I'm going to have to eventually put a star rating over on Letterboxd, and maybe they'll all just get the same star rating yeah. or work no, close. The, the, real, the real test will be the Anderson ranked list. I know where you're going, and, and that was one of my <laughs> questions, actually, that maybe we could just get into now. Josh, it's it's terrible, but knowing you, you probably feel like this is the only way to do it. It's terrible to me that we have to rank these as separate films. I mean, I would love to rank them as one entity. And I suppose you could. You could just sit them all four next to each other wherever you slot them. But yeah. that also seems improper. Yeah. I mean, and, and if we do, is this like, are we talking like top three territory for Anderson? I mean, we might be, but I also need to give Asteroid City another look, you know, I've, I've, I've only seen it twice. Anyway, this yeah. is a conversation for another I know. time. <laughs> I know it is. Yeah. Really loved the rat catcher. Really loved the fine's performance for all the reasons that you expressed. And maybe this is where you're going to go with the cinematic technique, or at least singling out a sequence. But this film may have the best single sequence mm. amongst all the shorts, and it's the the rat showdown. Mm -hmm. It's the rat mm -hmm. showdown where we get Fines versus Rupert Friend, <laughs> who is now taken on has taken on this character, and they're they're acting out the battle. That's taking place, but they're the not prop man. We should note the prop yes. man handing Rupert friend rat teeth to put in, which that's we right. see on screen. Yeah. But the way he does this is almost a, a pseudo horror film, but really minimalist where the, the actors are both still They're They're only using still faces against the, the black backdrops. And then of course that, that is preceded by the stop motion animation. But I found that so so effective and so surprising, even though almost every moment of these films is surprising in terms of Anderson rolling out another technique. And yet the expressionism employed in that sequence was something that really caught me off guard in the best, in the best way. And then to go from that and the wonderful cut we get, the beat we get right from that Back to Ray Fiennes as narrator sitting in his chair <laughs> as Roald Dahl. It, it's it's so wonderful. It's it's this undercutting ability that Anderson has with his films, knowing just how to undercut his own moment. And and for me, that's why he's never struck me as pretentious. Like this this claim that others have for him is that he he's almost just when things become too overly emotional, or too ridiculous, or too violent. He knows how to undercut himself and pull away, dramatically pull away. Um, and yeah, that's an example of it. You're right. That's the cinematic technique. You could call it, you know, the use of insert shots, I guess. We get those Dutch angles. They mm -hmm. are even. Um, it's a little bit of a montage, too, cutting back and forth. But yeah, it's it's a great a great sequence. So maybe the only other one I'll call out, which is, I've already talked about camera pushes, but how about this, where the Ratman is talking about how you would, early on here, if you had a rat in a sewer, how you would capture them, right? So we see this camera push towards a sewer opening in the background. Yes. Then we get a cut and we're inside the sewer. The camera's yeah. inside the sewer. I'm sure everyone, anyone who's had a Netflix account and has been luckily and lucky enough to have Netflix suggest watching the rat catcher. This is the image you'll see. It's looking out of the sewer tunnel towards their three faces, looking in, and the camera starts moving right yeah. forward. It's it's the rat. We become the rat. This is it because it pauses. <laughs> 
just yeah. as fi- fine says, uh-huh. you know, that, that the rat moves a little bit and then stops. The camera stops. Yeah. And, uh, it's just, yeah, it's also so much fun. So this one is maybe if here, here's what I'll say about it. If you're tentative about getting into all this, maybe start with the rat catcher. You know what? I'm with you there. I'm with you. If for whatever reason you're reticent or you're not, I don't know, totally in love with Anderson like we are, but you want to hear what we're raving about, I'm with you, Josh. I think it's a great point. Watch the rat catcher. See if it works for you. I want to ask you one thing, too, because I can't remember the stop motion rat we mentioned. Now, it's one point. (laughs) Speaking of narration and messing with our minds and just exploring every possible way you can narrate a story, the rat starts mouthing the words. This is the rat that's about to fight the rat catcher and die. It's pretty clear he's going to die. But he starts mouthing the words, I can't remember. I'm assuming it's Ayoade's newspaper man describing what's going to happen. Or is it the rat catcher describing what he's going to do? Do Yeah, I can't remember. I don't. Anyways, it probably doesn't matter. The point is this wonderful stop motion rat stands up and starts like adopting anthropomorphic you know, actions and you see his mouth moving along with the voiceover narration we hear. (laughs) Right. Yeah. A a nice moment for me, a funny moment for me that speaks to this overall do-it-yourself aesthetic, even though nothing about this is do-it-yourself or just emerging in front of us, but that, that magic that Wes Anderson pulls off to make us feel that way. How about the part where the rat catcher finds is talking about the tin Oh, with the yeah. poison in it. Yeah. And and of course he's he's holding air. He he doesn't even break out the tin. And and my brain started to go to a few different places, like, well, is this just all part of the the construct and it works that there's a lot of imagination employed throughout? Or is it also tied to something like the way they're describing the potency of the poison? It's like we're not even gonna hold a real tin, mm, <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. like, we're, we're going to, we're going to just have the air. We're going to pretend we're holding it. But, but when they, they shake it, when finds his character shakes it, mm. there's of course nothing in his hand. So he makes the sound effect. <laughs> he makes the sound effect noise. And finds actually does is what you're yes. pointing out, right? Yes. It's not like the sound design. Yeah, no, exactly. He's, he's literally doing it right in front of us, which is one of the funniest moments <laughs> in these films. And, and here's where, I'll I'll get to maybe my big takeaway from this film and tie it back to the rest and we can transition into poison. You talked about the delivery, Ayoadi's delivery and his reaction to that line. You've almost got to be a rat yourself. And what that really cemented for me, I'm trying to think about why Dahl, without having read them, wrote these stories as a collection the English major in me wants to try to look for some unifying ideas and themes. And of course, I want to know why Wes Anderson chose to make these four. Mm-hmm. And on some level, I'm going to talk about a few things that maybe are unique ideas, but I think are related that the films are dealing with. Aren't these all stories? Ultimately, to go back to the line I mentioned from the wonderful story of Henry Sugar, aren't they all ultimately stories about this, this conflict between people who aren't exactly bad people, but they're also not really good people. And the rat catcher might in fact embody that in this particular film. I think there are characters throughout that embody that. I think what we also get directly tied to that notion is in all four films, we see moments of tremendous cruelty. I think they're about 
our capacity for cruelty as humans. And the other idea that's swirling around in my head is I feel like all these films are about the idea of transformation. We see a sort of transformation and not always a good one. Sometimes, like in the case of Poison, maybe it actually goes the other way. It might go the other way from, from good to bad instead of bad or a character who may not seem redeemable becoming redeemed. But we see it in the form of very blatantly, we see it in The Swan, the idea of transformation. We see it in Henry Sugar, the transformation he goes through as a human being. I, I don't know that the transformation is there so much in The Rat Catcher, but it is at its core, this idea, Josh, of, of this man who, who seems to embody all the traits of a rat. And so we're never quite sure how we feel about him or whether or not he's someone who is ultimately capable of real cruelty. And then Poison. We get to Poison, this movie where we have three characters that all seem to be serving each other and serving a greater good and helping each other. And in one moment, in one moment, it all shifts. And a character who we previously felt a certain way about, we now have a completely different perspective on as he transforms in front of us. Yeah, I think I think maybe that's why Poison is a bit of the tricky one for me, is it feels in some ways the least Dahl from what I have read. Uh, for me, Dahl has always been, and it's interesting that Anderson has brought him back into fashion to a certain degree in recent years since Fantastic Mr. Fox, because he's really kind of an out-of-fashion writer. He's a bit of a moralist. And I think that gets lost because he's also, he's kind of mean in his moralism. So if you're the target, and this goes to how you quoted that line about describing the people at the casino, like that's some bitter, mean, you know, punching below the gut descriptions of the women around the table and, and the and the greedy men, right? But that's because they're on the other side of his moral universe. This is never more clear than in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That's that's an entire moral test. That's the point of the story, right? And so I think that makes sense, very much sense with Henry Sugar. You could even say it's maybe, you know, it's thank goodness we have those other layers of the story to Henry Sugar, because if it was only about Henry Sugar learning to become a good man, put me to sleep, right? So there's a lot, there's a lot more there. You see it in the swan, absolutely, that that there are good boys mm-hmm. and there are bad boys. Very bad boys in this right? case. Yeah. Dangerous. What's the line? Uh, see, I wish I could recall it, but dangerous. I think that's yes. the key, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Peter Watson recognizes that they're dangerous. So I love how you're framing this in terms of the rat catcher. I don't know that there's much moralism at play in this one. And maybe that's why it feels the lightest. The most comedic is because the rat catcher himself is a mysterious character. We don't really learn that much about the newspaper man or the garage man. And yeah, yeah. yeah. So no, I, I, I agree with that. And I think the moments that stand out for me and how I still think it maybe fits within this paradigm, it's, it's the moment or it's some of the moments leading up to the showdown, the fight between the rat catcher and the rat, the one that we were talking about, how vividly it comes to life. And it's when Ayuadi, as the narrator, is expressing his qualms. glee, and we yeah. see it. Yeah, qualms, but it starts 
He can't help but be interested and intrigued. Remember those moments where both characters are kind of like, oh, we actually do want to hear about that. Yes, tell us the gory details. And then once they start hearing him, at least Ayoade's character pulls back a little bit, but he expresses something at one point, Josh, that sticks with me, where he talks about how reticent he gets about what he knows is about to happen because he's going to watch something die in such a creative way or like so much effort is being put into yeah, killing this enthusiasm, thing. Yeah, something like yeah, that. Something like that, even though this thing is is just a rat. Right. And, and everyone's natural inclination is to want it dead and want it gone. He he in that moment takes a little bit more of a moral posture there. No, I agree. And and violence is at play here, right? Yes. It's it's a consideration of violence and the use of violence, how it's employed. The relish. Is that yes. the word? I think maybe, I, but I, that's something what it like is. relish comes yeah. up. So yeah, yeah. Maybe that's the moral question there at the heart of of this one. And I think, you know, I think poison absolutely ends with a stark moral question. This is one I have not read, and I am so fascinated to track down because the the story collection, the Henry Sugar story collection that I got from the library did not include Ratcatcher and Poison. So again, I don't know if those are in other collections or, or how how the publication process worked, but but I do want to track it down because I'm just curious. It seems to be making pointed claims about xenophobia, racism, mm-hmm. and if it's true, as true to Dahl's original works as the other two shorts that I have read are, it's got to all be there, but it strikes me as a little bit different and left me a little bit, as I said, harder to get my mind around than the others. Yeah, me too. And I think part of it might be that of the four, it seems to me obviously the most restrained, the most confined by its space. Yes. It all unfolds within this space. The the room within which the Benedict Cumberbatch character Pope is lying down. And we see, we see characters come into that space. We occasionally see them go into another room, but otherwise it's all confined to this one location. So maybe it doesn't quite feel like it has the, the same ingenuity or inventiveness that the other movies have. And yet we still get moments of real wonder. I mentioned the, the scene where we get the camera overhead and for a second, as it moves over the characters, you feel as if this is a bit of a stunt. Now, Cumberbatch is looking up at you, and even the narrator, Dev Patel, is looking up at you as he's talking. But you realize that in order to, in order to capture this moment that's about to play out with the snake, the only way to get all three of those characters in the shot is for it to be overhead. But it's still, it's still a really nice moment and use of the camera. And the one that really kind of took my breath away, Josh, I mentioned, you know, how a lot of this film feels appropriately like a picture book come to life. When Patel calls Kingsley's doctor, he's in another place. He's in his physical space being called, being ushered over to help. And the frame is is one, but divided in the middle, and it makes it seem as if you truly are looking at two pages in a book. Dr. Ganaby, this is Supervisor Woods. Hello, Mr. Woods. You're not in bed yet. Please come round at once and bring serum for a crite. Serum for a crite? Who's been bitten? The question came so sharply it was like a small explosion in my ear. No one. 
No one yet. Harry Pope's in bed and he's got one sleeping on his stomach under the sheet. That's a moment I really loved. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, a split screen effect essentially is what it is. So mm-hmm. so let's stay on that topic. And I want to give another example that relates to the idea of violence that I was talking about when it comes to the rat catcher. Here we get a split screen of Woods played by Dev Patel. So the British soldier, this is what's not entirely clear. Obviously, Patel is Indian, and Mm -hmm. so that maybe confuses things. But anyways, he is a soldier alongside Benedict Cumberbatch's character who thinks he has the snake on him. So he's here to help him. And this is later on, Dr. Ganderby has been called in, the Kingsley character. We get this split screen where Woods, the Patel character, is on the left side, very stark lighting. And he is describing what Dr. Ganderby is doing, which we see on the right side of the screen. It's pouring chloroform into a tube, which they hope will knock out the snake, right? This is the first time on the left side with Woods, the Patel character, very stark lighting. And we notice, oh yeah, what I thought might be a scar on his forehead is actually a grotesque, garish scar. It's it's being illuminated there. And there's a little aside, Wood says, while he's talking about what's happening, that the smell of this chloroform brings to mind, I think he says nurses and, and, and an operation or, or something like that. And suddenly we realize, oh, he's, we presume, been in battle or something and was wounded and had surgery. And, and this is where he is now. So again, something you could only do. As a piece of cinema, the split screen, right? Give us all of this, but also ties back to the idea of trauma we've been talking about, particularly with a swan, processing trauma, narrating it uh, when someone else's story brings out your trauma. And so I feel like Poison is almost the more politically pointed of the four uh, in a way that to me feels new to Dahl. Political points are different than moral points. And then there is, should we just talk about the ending? Because it's yeah. such a curious, I think we have to spoil this one, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I, okay. I think we should. I'd love to hear your take on it. So if you're listening to this right now and you haven't seen Poison yet and you don't want the last minute or so spoiled for you, then I'd, I'd jump ahead 30 to 60 seconds at least. But Josh, what did you make of it? Yeah. So, so just to, you know, relay what happened is basically there's no snake. We find out there's no snake and Dr. Ganderby, the Ben Kingsley character makes a light joke about maybe Harry, the Benedict Cumberbatch character was dreaming this and Harry just freaks out. He's already jumped up on his bed and has been freaked out by the fact that he thought there was a snake there. So he's in a heightened emotional state, but he freaks out at this comment and calls Dr. Ganderby, who obviously played by Ben Kingsley, part Indian. He calls him a dirty little Bengali sewer rat. Woods, the Patel character, steps in, says, shut up, Harry. Harry continues, you dirty, brown, filthy, little backwards cast. And then Woods interrupts him and shouts even louder, shut your mouth. And there's, you know, after that, there's a little epilogue where Woods is outside with Dr. Ganderby, who's leaving in his car, and Woods says, I'm sorry. Dr. Ganderby says, you can't be. And then we cut to Dahl. We go back to Fines, the last person we see of all these films who just says, Dr. Ganderby started the engine and drove off. And it ends. Yeah. All of these films end there. And, you know, 
this increasing antagonism we've traced between Dr. Ganderby and, and Harry, maybe it's just that they've had prior tension in their relationship, but the specificity of his insults suggests something more, right? That suggests racism, xenophobia. Mm-hmm. There is the whole history of British colonialism in, in India at play here. There's just so much that I feel like is dropped into this little 17-minute short that we curiously end all of these on. I don't think it makes it any more or any less. It makes it very distinct for me from the others, I guess is what I'd say. Yeah, distinct is a good way to put it. And maybe if I'm going to put it in boring qualitative terms, I'll say overall, maybe the least satisfying of the four for me. And yet I say that acknowledging that I'd love to watch it again, because the more you start to key into the subtext of it, the greater the ramifications of it, where you start to really watch Cumberbatch's face. You watch how his character is reacting to things. And what seems initially just like fear or uncertainty and maybe a little bit of mania because of what he's been undergoing for the last several hours, you realize it's tinged with something much deeper than that, which is perhaps a severe distrust yes. of the of the person or people helping him. And he's getting increasingly unhinged actually because of that. Mm-hmm. Because he he knows he's in a situation where he's relying on someone he finds completely unreliable. Yeah. And he's battling himself there. And, and I don't mean battling like he's really in conflict or he's looking to change his mind. That's the conflict. The conflict is that he can't change his mind. And the ending, that final bit, of all the moments in these films that that really leave a mark, if you will, Dr. Ganderby, Kingsley saying, you can't be, yeah. is, is up there mm-hmm. with them, Josh, if not the most poignant. Because we'll see if we interpreted it the same way, but it kind of has that double meaning where you might take it literally as if he is saying, you can't be sorry. I, I'm rejecting your apology. Of course, what what he's saying on a much deeper level is it's not for you to apologize. You can't be sorry for this. The only person who can be sorry for this is the man laying in there who will never admit that he's sorry or ever feel that remorse. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. It's powerful. Th- it's really powerful. I think that's right. And and it, and it just makes me more curious about the Woods character, right? Is like what his role is in this military unit, uh, because I feel like that would possibly give us more answers, but I don't know that we need those answers for us to be left in this state of unsettled discomfort. And I think it's okay to be left there when this is the subject matter of the short story, but it does feel jarring after the other three films that we've experienced. I, I, I think that's, that's fair to say. I wouldn't start here. For sure, no. is what I would say. Poison, The Rat Catcher, The Swan, and The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, all available on Netflix. We would love to hear your thoughts about the movies, your thoughts about the show. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, that is our show. If you want to connect with us on social media, you can try. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Letterboxd. Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on film. The current film spotting poll has us looking ahead to Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. We're asking, what is your favorite 
three-plus-hour film of the last 20 years. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. You can also support us by joining the Film Spotting family. That's at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad-free. You'll also get Sam's weekly newsletter. Depending on the tier you choose, you might get a monthly bonus show. You might get access to the entire Film Spotting archive. You might get both. You might indeed. And we look back at the archive. The Wes Anderson tag on our website came in very handy here, Josh. We have reviews of everything going back to 2007's The Darjeeling Limited. Quick run through of some of the highlights. 674, Isle of Dogs, top five of Wes Anderson scenes. 630, Rushmore, Sacred Cow. 589, The Royal Tenenbaum, Sacred Cow. 481, you can listen to me be wrong at that point about the Grand Budapest Hotel, but you can hear me be right about the top five Wes Anderson scenes. And how about episode 182, where Wes Anderson and Jason Schwartzman actually appeared on Film Spotting? Yeah, I interviewed them back on that episode upon the release of the Darjeeling Limited. And didn't we revisit The Life Aquatic not too long ago, Josh, for bonus content? Um, Did we? The answer is we did, unfortunately. It was part of a we were wrong once segment, and I guess I was still wrong because I still I still don't like it. It's still the Wes Anderson I can't get on board with. And, and I've I know never that, been that wrong. hurts you. I love never it been from wrong. the start. So of course. Mislabeled as well. <laughs> yeah. You can find all of those at filmspottingfamily.com. In limited release, you can see Dick's the musical two self-obsessed businessmen realize they're identical twins and plot to reunite their parents. Our friend Brian Tallarico says it gets major points for undying commitment to being weird as F. It's directed by Larry Charles of Borat fame. You can also see Once Within Time, the latest from director Godfrey Reggio, who made the 80s experimental doc, and there's only one way to say this, Koyanaskatsi periodical <laughs> is out. The story of the human body by way of the marvel and the mystery that is the menstrual cycle. Streaming, you can watch The Burial with Tommy Lee Jones and Jamie Foxx in a 90s-set courtroom drama. Our friend Robert Daniels says, after seeing hundreds of films a year, it's easy to forget that sometimes the surest and sometimes best pleasure comes from simple comfort food, Foxx's best performance in recent memory. That's on Amazon Prime. Of course, in wide release, no one wants to compete, it seems, with Taylor Swift's Eras Tour. That's the only ticket I'm going to get to the Eras Tour. I'm going to have to see it on the big screen. Oh, yeah. That's uh, same with me. We we put our concert money towards Beyonce this summer, skip Taylor Swift. So time to catch up now. Next week, it is our top five movies that Siskel and Ebert got wrong with author of Opposable Thumbs. Matt Singer should be a fun one. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film spotting is listener supported.
Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.